You're listening to the Outspoken Bible from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Outspoken Bible. I'm Fiona Stewart and I'm here with Jen Robertson and Neil Glover. Hello to you both. Hello, Fiona. Fiona. Good to see you. Neil and I actually saw each other in real life this week, Jen, so we were we were missing you because we were doing some work together. Um, and we it kept was legal maybe, work. You know, we were legally allowed to be It here. was legal work. Yes, we were. And we were at all times socially distanced and we're allowed, we're allowed to say what it was because we were allowed to talk about the outspoken bible on the other thing that's true yeah but we're back on reflections at the key um which is broadcast i think on the 21st of march so the sunday before palm sunday and uh, so we were filming at the key and of course you film with this backdrop of of big windows out to the clyde and we, we were kind of hoping jen that you might have been walking past with the dog at that point what, what that i'm really lovely. hoping for is that they expand the format to have a third presenter <laughs> i mean they'd have to up the budget wouldn't they if they wanted you jen <laughs> have to talk to your agent <laughs> So yes, we we have seen each other in real life. Actually, Jen and I met in a park the other week. That's that's we a did. whole other thing. Just coincidentally, coincidentally, yeah. I know it's amazing. A park yeah. the size of Lynn Park. We happened to bump into each other, um, not literally. Anyway, it's lovely to see both. Um, we're we're going to pick up on the Gospel of Mark again today and reading from the beginning of chapter two through to verse twenty six of chapter eight. So it's quite a chunky section we're looking at. And um, but before we do that, we've got a few resources to flag up for you. First is that as you're reading along with us, there are some beautifully designed Gospels of Mark available from SBS. So those are a kind of magazine format. They've got beautiful images alongside the text. They're ideal for giving away to people or perhaps including in a, a gift bag at Easter time. Um, you can get those two for four pounds with no postage or you can get ten for a pound each plus postage and packing and that's available through scottish.bible and then we've previously mentioned i think the lent reader and wonder walks resources that are available those can be downloaded from scottish.bible forward slash easter very very Uh, good wonder walk alistair got to listen to that the other day oh good oh i've not listened to that yet there was a nice bit of chaos where you faithfully recorded family chaos at one point i did enjoy that that's that's what we want. We want that authentic experience, really, don't we? Of what it's actually like. Oh, every parent listening to that just went, "Oh, phew, good." <laughs> I mean, yeah, where can that... people? Where do people find that to listen to? Is that on? Is that on our podcast? Yes, yeah, last episode. I'm so sorry. I haven't obviously paid attention. Do you, do you do you listen to your own podcast, Fiona? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the time for that, Neil? <laughs> Too busy. I do. I enjoy it. I do actually enjoy I, it. I, yeah, I do actually. When, whenever I do, and I, yeah, I do it re- relatively frequently. You're scrambling I do actually now. Really enjoy it. No, no, I really am. I'm going to move on. Um, now, final thing to say that's available on. <laughs> it's going to be a good episode, isn't it? Uh, final thing to say that when we started is... the reflections, of the key, the woman, yeah. we, we just said hello, and the woman said, "I can tell it's going to be a good episode," and I was really shocked. <laughs> And then, I mean, the, and then I thought, oh, no, bit of pressure though, because then I thought, am I can I maintain my exuberance now? Anyway, in terms of resources, just to nail this section, <laughs> um, we've also got resource packs available with half-hour sessions for churches on the life of Jesus. Jen, do you want to tell us anything about that in particular? Yes, it's an all-age online resource. Um, takes you through different gospels, ending in uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Five sessions on Zoom. Um, very simple, easy to access using our Bible World book. 
PowerPoints, videos at points. I think they're on the same place as everything else that we've talked about. Scottish.bible, Easter, forward slash Easter. Great, scottish.bible forward slash Easter for that. So lots of resources yeah. there to, to download and use. Fantastic. Obviously, uh, the repeat call is that we would love to hear from you, listeners. Um, you can get in touch with us by going to scottish.bible and hitting that buzz button to tell us by email what your thoughts are. If you've got questions for Jen, for Jen's Gems, um, or just thoughts of how you're getting on reading Mark's Gospel, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> It's time for Glover's Off. I I want to talk about infinity today and numbers. Uh, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about um, when I was a young boy, I used to be fascinated with the idea of what is the biggest number. I mean, I'm not the only person who used to think this. Um, and I remember used to say to people, um, what's the biggest number? Infinity. And they'd go infinity. I'd, by the way, infinity is not a number. It doesn't belong to the set of numbers. It's a concept. But... Um, yeah, they, and, and people would say infinity and then I'd go, but yeah, but what about the number after infinity? Or do you just run out? Do you hit a wall where you can't count anymore? And and um, I love the the curiosity, the, the, the number, the search engine Google, people, people probably know this, is named after the largest number that had a, a name, which is Google, is spelled slightly differently. And that was invented. I didn't I was, know that, Neil. I don't think people do know that. Did they not know That's that? That's really interesting. Okay. Please, carry so, on. I don't want to patronise the beloved listener. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was a nine-year-old boy who came up with that word. Um, his name was Milton Sorota, and he was having a chat with Edward Kasner. I mean, I think it kind of helps when um, your uncle is a famous mathematician. I mean, I'm sure other children have invented numbers' names, but, you know, he had access to, to some kind of publicity machine. So his uncle, Edward uh, Milton Sorota, says, let's call it Google uh, for one with 100 zeros after it. Or it might be 10 with 100 zeros after it, but I think it's one with 100 zeros, which is a massive number. I mean, really ridiculously large. Um, the number of neutrons in the universe, which is a very small particle, is is smaller than than Google. And and these numbers, these numbers are huge, but infinity is even is even bigger. And um, oh, by the way, the numbers can go all and on. So I think a something like ten, a Google to the power of Google or something. I think is called Googleplex, and you can even have ten to the power of Googleplex, which I think is called a Googleplexian. So that's the biggest number I've come across with an actual name. But the point being that infinity is even bigger than that because you can always get to Googleplexian plus one. And God, if we say that God is infinite, God is even bigger than that. So, so the vastness the bigness of god is huge now here's a thing i have no science to prove this but my experience is that to heighten your understanding of the size of god almost always heightens your insight into the love of god there, there, there seems to be something that happens that when you sense the bigness of god's size you also sense the bigness of god's love um and and there's a second type of infinity as well, which I think I want to illustrate. So the, there's the big massive numbers, there's the Googleplex is Googleplex plus one. But there is also another kind of infinity, which is what is the num what are the number of numbers between the number one and the number two? And the answer to that is also infinity. 
In fact, what are the number of numbers between the number 1 and 1.001? Still infinity. But it's a very tiny infinity. It's an infinity which goes down. And God does both. God does the infinite, the infinity of the big, but also the infinity of the small. God is infinitely large and infinitely small. There is nowhere where God does not reach, both in size and in intimacy. And when we expand our vision of the bigness of God, I also think we have a bigger understanding of the love of God. Wow. Wow, that's great. That's great. Yeah. It reminds me of that. Um, is it an Eames film, the 10 to the Power film? Did you ever see that? It started with a, a family on a picnic blanket in San Francisco, and then it went out every time 10 to the yeah. Power. And it got further and further out into until you got the expanse of space. And then the mm. thing zoomed back in again. And then you went into, it was the guy's oh. hand, I think, yeah. and right down into the cellular uh, yeah. construction. I mean, obviously it wasn't really filmed, um, <laughs> but it was to give you a sense of the size of the universe and the, and the, the complexity of I mean, God, I mean, it sounds patronizing. God's really clever. <laughs> come up with all that stuff. Infinitely clever. Amazing. I Brilliant. Mean, yeah, and, and I think a lot of the time when the Bible rails against mm -hmm. idols... Uh, it's about making God small and not mm -hmm. wanting that to happen. Great. Well, thank you very much. That that has thank sparked you. off a whole lot of thought with our glovers off. Um, and it's actually quite an interesting way into the chapters we're going to talk about this week, isn't it? Because last time we, we were sitting in chapter one and we, we had this insight into the, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the baptism, temptation, um, something of an insight into his daily way of being. So the withdrawal to a solitary place the calling of the disciples that something was was it was very much about beginnings wasn't it and now it feels in chapter two that we're, we're suddenly cracking into a very specific story which the reason for me saying it was a good segue is that is there is something of actually the whole expanse of infinity finds itself rooted in a very um specific day-to-day -day story of, yeah. of how Jesus then encounters people, doesn't he? Um, so I'd quite like to talk about simplicity and complexity to begin with, because because I think there's a danger with Mark that we read it as a series of events and we think of it as quite a simple gospel compared to the others, less complex. But I wonder if there's a danger that we then lose the theological impact of what Mark's saying. I think there is a lot. So we, we've thought about this, that there's that quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Now, Fiona, you got the whole quote because uh, little secret, we were talking about this last week and then you used it in one of your other podcasts. Um, I did. Would you like me to find it? Yeah, go and, go and find the other quote, which, by the way, when you were in your other podcast... I mean, I don't know how you keep track of yeah, all your podcasts. The, we're going to the looking glass here. Yeah, um, carry on. But you refer to it as, yes, yeah, somebody on one of my other podcasts. Like, could you not have just said the Outspoken Bible? <laughs> I, like to, I like to keep compartmentalised. <laughs> yes. So Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a judge and uh, seems to be quite a big mind. He also wrote a hymn. I can't remember which hymn, but I came across it recently. Um, he had this quote where he said, I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity. In other words, complicity, simplicity, which is naive or just, just kind of not really thought about things. But he said, I would give everything for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And what he's saying is that in, in addressing almost any significant problem, you have a simple answer. You then have a very complicated answer as you look at it more. 
But often, if you keep going and keep going, you'll end up at another simplicity. Or you'll get to the essence of what it is. And very often, great art, for example, I think, has gone through that process. You can you can find it, for example, sometimes if you watch a badly watched, badly put together film, and the complex they haven't got to the other side of complexity. It's all still a bit of a mess. Mm. And I know art is often like that. I know that's often the case when I write sermons. You've got to keep going until you try and get mm-hmm. to the, the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Well, Mark has done that. He has got mm-hmm. to the simplicity on the other side of complexity. He is a genius. But behind his simplicity, there is lots of subtlety and thought. And perhaps a, a, a story which, which illustrates that is um, the end of Mark chapter 4, where... Um, it's the stilling of the storm. And on one level, I mean, it's already quite a profound story about the, the stilling of the storm. But what Mark doesn't labor is the fact that there are lots of little allusions to the Jonah story going on here. But they're so subtle. Um, the, the, the word for big wind, the idea that, that Jesus is sleeping in the boat, the way that the people are trying to wake him up. And then the contrast, though, that the, the storming of the calming, not the storming of the calm, the calming of the <laughs> storm that happens in, in Mark's version of the story doesn't happen by someone throwing, being thrown aboard. It is simply happens because of the power of the, of the word over the waters. And whilst he's also doing that, he's alluding to another story, which is about the, the, the chaotic waters, um, which is in Genesis and also in the Red Sea story, being calmed by the word of God. So all sorts of subtle allusions are going on there. Uh, and Mark doesn't labor them. I mean, as an artist, he must go, do you see what I did there? Did you notice? Uh-huh. But he doesn't. He just uh-huh. keeps moving on. So there's a, a tremendous depth, a tremendous sense of knowing as a storyteller. And Mark also allowing his readers to do a lot of the work. Yeah. I like that as well because it, it, it makes me think about how um, Second Timothy quote about a verse about God's word being inspired. Mm. So there's a there's a lovely sort of bringing together of what what is actually happening because these events did happen. Yeah, how Mark is writing them, how how the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to 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 offer interpretation into that, and I suppose how Jesus interprets his own actions. It, it feels like a lovely. That feels like a lovely complexity. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the John Mark Comer quote, which we've quoted before in the podcast, which is um, these these books are such genius. It's almost like they had some help. Yeah, so great. So we're straight straight away into these different events. Jen, did you want to talk a bit about John the Baptist? It's an an interesting wee moment, isn't it? Because uh, John's already dead. I think think, what chapter we're in here. It doesn't matter too much. Chapter three, I think, or something. And... John, Mark goes back and tells the story of how um, John the Baptist was was killed by Herod. It's, it's Mark and chapter I, six. Sorry, Jane. Oh, it's six. Further on. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting in and of itself, isn't it? In terms of how Mark places it. Yeah. Yeah. He, and it, he tells yeah. it backwards, doesn't he? he tells he's, it in retrospect. He's reflecting back. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just an awful story of um, Herod spiraling down into absolute. Um, no, an awful murder, and he and he's in this situation being influenced by the powerful people and the the people that he thinks matter, and all these voices telling him what to do. But just just in it, at one point, um, Mark records that John, um, before John is killed by Herod, Herod it says that Herod um, kept John safe because he knew John 
was a holy man who did what was right. Um, and he liked to listen to John. So in this midst of this man who's going to commit this terrible murder, there is a glimpse of goodness, of seeking the truth. Uh, and that, that reminded me of a, the Solzhenitsyn quote. Um, no, Solzhenitsyn said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being mm-hmm. and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. And just and that's I hadn't really noticed that so much before in the story of the death of John the Baptist, that for Herod, who epitome of evil, you know, we see him as that, uh, the, ev- the, the goodness was there. Mm-hmm. But that's not the path he chose to go down. And there's something in there's something in Mark that I was reflecting on this that you know that goodness of Herod or potential goodness of Herod, yeah. but ultimately he's trapped in a system. He's trapped in a in a in a moment where suddenly he he's caught between wanting to impress all his guests yeah. and the, the need to play the power game that as a king he has to play, mm. and and actually probably what he wants to do within himself, um, and and he's boasting about kingdoms at this point. And I think one of the things that's going on in Mark at a larger level is that people are trapped inside kingdoms. Um, mm. And, and Mark's asking them, are you, are you going to be able to break out of this in the way that, that Jesus does? So Herod is failing to do that, but there's this big challenge as well for the Pharisees. Are they going to be able to break out the system? And you might think we're over egging it a little bit, but um, that that little quote where uh, Jesus says this is this is later on, but it's the same idea of systems, where um, Jesus is is sitting opposite on the Mount of Olives, which almost stands as a, a contrast to the, the the Jerusalem Temple Mountain, and he says that thing, or, or and also he talks about the the stones being thrown down, and later on as well in the story about the fig tree, he talks about if you say to this mountain it will be thrown into the sea, then it can be. And you think, oh, that's just about the power of prayer. And it's about, you know, imagine that being able to lift a mountain. But it's very obviously talking about the Jerusalem mountain. So there's something about the whole system of the temple potentially mm-hmm. being overthrown by the life of mm-hmm. prayer. So there, there are two, there are different levels happening in Mark. Um, one is very much on the personal, the intimate level. But the other is also this idea that the systems uh, are, mm-hmm. are going to be over, overturned. There's such a contrast, isn't there, between the kingdom that Herod is trying to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maintain, grow, and, yeah. and the kingdom that is just in every page of this book as yeah. Jesus travels through the countryside. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the, the people mm-hmm. he speaks to, the people he he heals, the the stories he tells. It's a completely radical, different kingdom. And yet he this is the true kingdom of God. Yeah. And Herod's is a a fake kingdom. Yeah. Herod's kingdom brings out the worst in people and Jesus's brings out the best. Yeah. I was thinking as well, there's there's a real personal application to all of that, isn't there? Because, you know, we are living in very polarised times and I think it's really helpful to, drawing on the Solzhenitsyn quote, to, to always be filtering my responses and filtering my words through that kingdom's filter. Yeah. Mm. So, 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 what is the the Jesus kingdom response to any given situation? 
how do I how do I negotiate? You know, I mean, on the on the kind of international level, but also on a on a personal level, always sort of checking my my responses against that. I think is is really that's really interesting, actually. Fiona, because I think sometimes when when people say the kind of thing that that you just said, you know, how how do I check my response? It's it's a little bit like what would Jesus do? You know, you're asking your moment, what yes. would Jesus do here? But actually, by framing it in terms of kingdom you're then starting to ask a question about how how does power work here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think that's a real i think that's actually a much and sometimes is a very pertinent quite problem because often when we say what what would jesus do it's often an invitation to be nice yes and yes. whereas to ask the question what is power doing here because yes. kingdom kingdom is all about power yes then you're asking the question, how, how are people behaving collectively in a way which might cause certain individuals to be crushed or isolated mm-hmm. or disenfranchised or, or treated yeah. as, as being less than they are? And that, that question, I think, is one that, if I'm honest, in, in Christian organizations and churches, we need to ask far mm-hmm. more often. Yeah. Because often yeah. we can use nice Christian rhetoric, but the way mm-hmm. that our behaviours are causing power to diminish people is often mm. very destructive. Yeah, I think it's also a dynamic way of thinking about it as opposed to a static way. So I think mm. that what would Jesus do feels quite static. It feels if I thumb through my Gospels enough, yeah. I'll find the equivalent situation yeah. and I'll just replicate that. Whereas I think I think what we're talking about here, what we're touching on here is much more about um, living out our citizenship yeah. of a of a kingdom yeah. that is still growing and is still active, isn't it? And and therefore having personal responsibility and what what decisions we make around that, mm. but with reference to the sovereignty of of God and, and everything. It's bringing ourselves into the story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Again and again, and and in this in these stories, you see, we see the religious leaders who are so obsessed. Uh, with catching Jesus out, they can't see what's happening. And you've got Herod mm-hmm. who's so obsessed with having the people of power round about him. Mm-hmm. He 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 misses the opportunity to go the right way. And then there's Jesus who, you know, he just again and again goes to the man whose you know, his mental health is so destroyed that he's hurting himself. He's been excluded from society. Uh, Jesus is with him. There's the woman who's been bleeding for years and years and years and has no contact with her with her society because of the condition she's got. There's Jesus looking for her. There's a dead girl, specifically a girl, <laughs> not mm. a male child, um, who's dying, and and he goes to her and he's he, you know, he just again and again, he's with the people that need to know what this kingdom is all about, and he's not influenced yeah. by power. And the important voices. I suppose that's the challenge for me in this. You know that who do who do I spend my time with? Who am I listening to? well so can we think about chapter four a little bit so the parable of the sower seems to be very significant in its placing and in how the rest of the the encounters jen that you were talking about there they they kind of flow out from that 
it, do we again do we misread the the parable because we've heard it so many times do you think i think um i think there's something about the parable that it actually sets a frame for the whole of mark's understanding of what it is to be a follower of jesus it almost has the same place in mark that the sermon on the mount has in matthew and it it, it frames mark's view of discipleship Discipleship is such a big thing for for Mark. And Mark is saying there there are four ways that discipleship can go. And and there are three enemies and then then one way where it can flourish. And the, the first enemy is the devil, the powers of darkness. And um the the story of Jesus and Mark is of a battle against against evil powers. It, it's um, right from the start where he he goes in and he confronts the devil in the desert. Um, one reading of the the gospel, not necessarily one I agree with, but it's quite interesting, was by a, an Irish New Testament scholar called Ernest Best. He argued that the key moment in Mark was the defeat of the devil in Mark chapter one in the temptation, and he said everything else was a mopping up operation. I don't agree with that because it underplays mm-hmm. the, the significance of what happens in the cross. But uh, the, I was always struck by that. Another person um, who wrote about this was a man called Ched Myers. He he lived in, can you believe there's actually such a thing as a Markan community? He, in a, I think it was in Australia he did this, where people lived in a community and it was all based around the gospel of Mark. It's been pretty, pretty uh, restrictive. Um, but he wrote a book called Binding the Strong Man. And he argued that the key image was that, def- the, that Jesus is the one who breaks into the strong man's house in Mark chapter three and defeats the devil. So there is a demonic power going on here. And maybe if I can drop one other name, the name is Walter Wink, uh, who is a New Testament scholar who died recently, who was very interested in the language of powers in the um, in the New Testament, particularly Ephesians chapter 6. But he would argue that, that in the structures of this world, there are demonic spiritual powers at work, whether that's in an empire or a government or an organization. And sometimes people who have studied his stuff say, what is the angel of this organization? What is the angel of this office block? Anyway, Jesus confronts all that, and that can be an enemy of discipleship. The second enemy is the, the enemy of, of, of persecution, uh, of, the, of the sun beating down, and that's going to come up much more towards the end of the gospel, particularly Peter, who doesn't cope with uh, persecution, uh, those who run away. Probably that speaks a lot to Mark's audience who are potentially in Rome being persecuted. The third enemy is the cares of this world, uh, the weeds that come up and choke the life out of the seed. And that's going to be something that reappears again and again in Mark, whether it's the story of the of the rich man or potentially of the Pharisees who are so obsessed with human approval that they can't actually allow the true seed to grow or the story that we just talked about with Herod. So those are the big enemies. And what Mark is saying is, watch out. As your disciple, you're going to confront the devil, you're going to confront persecution, and you're going to uh, confront the attraction of the weeds that are going to suffocate the life out of your discipleship. And those appear again and again and again in the gospel. What's great news is that there is hope for the people who have succumbed to these. And later on, they too will go on uh, to to live with the potential of fruit. So I think Mark chapter 4 is a whole summary section on a teaching on discipleship, which will reappear again and again in the gospel. 
yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because that then sets up, I suppose, what we're going to talk about next, which is these encounters that then follow. So, Jen, you touched on them already. We've got the incident with with Jairus, Jairus and his daughter. We've got the woman who comes and touches Jesus' cloak. We've got that man who is uh, legion, demon possessed, um, really troubled. Uh, there's 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 something interesting happening in all of that, isn't there? Oh, they're just incredible stories. The, the people are so broken. And we can skim, I mean, you can skim read it over and just go, yeah, 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 that, <laughs> that was really good. Jesus helped them. But when we really think about what the lives of these people were like, you know, the, the, the guy who's who's on, out with the pigs, well, he ends up having these demons sent into the pigs, you know. When you think about the life, he was, he was tied up and he broke the chains and he broke the iron cuffs and he, you know, he damaged his own skin and he was screaming and he didn't sleep and he needed no clothes and all the all the goodness of of being human that just seems to have been lost to him and and Jesus comes to him and he's reclothed and he sits at Jesus' feet. Um, I think when I read that I, for this time, I just I was struck by the damage mm. and the hurt the hurt he was going through. And is that how people see the church today? Is that how people mm-hmm. see God's kingdom today? That we are mm-hmm. people who are reaching out to the most broken and the most damaged in our society. I'm not sure that is always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mm-hmm. moving on again, the woman who was bleeding, and I think. I do want to, I do want to speak as a woman about that story. I, I, that really speaks to me, you know. And Jesus says to her, "Dear woman," I was struck by those words. Here's a woman who, you know, she's been bleeding for twelve years. You know, having your period once a month is bad. You know, she had no sanitary products. She must have been washing cloths constantly to mm-hmm. keep herself clean. She was ostracized um, because she was seen as uh, religiously unclean. Uh, culturally unclean and Jesus finds her he finds her after he touches after she touches him and he restores her and how how her life she wants so much freedom that she's refound because she's not Mm. bleeding all the Mm. time and there's a social exclusion social exclusion of that as well I think you know the 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 business of of lockdown and isolation has Mm. maybe given a little bit more of an insight into the impact that has on you Mm -hmm. as a as a human being and how to connect with other people yeah, and, and being isolated is difficult enough without also having a physical condition that just mm-hmm. limits you completely from mm-hmm. doing anything but kind of keep your body clean. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, a, it's beautiful that that story is included in that wee bit in the middle when he's on his way to somewhere else. I always find it fascinating to think what, what happened to all these people? afterwards because the bible doesn't tell us the the action in the Mm. bible is going to move on the new testament is going to move on to um the roman empire it's going to move east or west rather um, into places like asia minor and then to greece and and rome we we don't ever find out what happens to these people and and Mm -hmm. jesus seems to be spectacularly unworried you know are are, are they still going to be here are we going to build a you know if you said to jesus what's your strategic plan you'd say well to defeat the power of darkness and restore all humanity and then yeah and then you'd say could you break that down to some subtask with some outcomes you'd just be like no (laughs) (laughs) because he's not that worried about he has to preach the gospel he's going to make that that difference and and 
what I think it just goes to what you were saying a moment ago. It matters is that part of that one moment of encounter. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's amazing how often Jesus touches someone in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And and that's the moment. It's almost all eternity is boiled down to that that one second. And people mm. people talk about the different meanings of what that that touch means. For some people, it's a a symbol of power moving um, from Jesus into the person. And for other people, it's a moment of identification. But something very important happens in that moment. Mm. And you don't you don't worry about what's going to happen even the next week or the next month or the next decade, what matters is that moment now. Yesterday, I, yesterday I did a wedding uh, and it was a lockdown wedding. It had five people at it uh, and the, the couple had postponed it four times in order oh. to get there. Uh, there'd been various things about receptions and I was a bit ridiculous at one point. Um, the, the guy who's getting married, Hauke, he, he's German uh, and, um, He's very, very fluent uh, English. Uh, in a moment, we'll find out just how fluent. But uh, he, there's a rule in lockdown that says uh, that at a wedding, you can have five people at it unless you need a translator, in which case you can have six. So the um, the, the brides, uh, the, the, she and Hacker are both older, Janice, uh, and she has children. And uh, the, maybe we thought we could... Um, we could get one of the children to translate for Hauka, and that would mean that she could get all three of her children at the wedding. And then later on, when we signed the wedding certificate yesterday, Hauka's job is translator. So I don't think we would have been able to <laughs> successfully argue that he needed a translator. But and for clarification, the translator wasn't present. The translator was not present. No, that because what what the it was event, all within the regulations. So what they did was they said she took the very difficult decision. She said, "I'm not going to invite my children to my wedding," mm. um, and instead she had her brother and her brother's wife, her sister-in-law. So it was basically Hauka, the two of them plus me, um, and and yet when she came up the aisle with her brother, no one else is there. And Hauka looks at Janice, the two of them just burst into tears. Yeah. I mean, actually, they'd just seen each other five minutes previously, you know, but there's something about that moment that all the hopes that they'd had and all the call-offs and all the people that they worried weren't there, that didn't matter because you're here. Mm. And I, it was a moment where I, I was overcome by the emotion of it myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, here I am at the smallest wedding I've ever done and potentially one of the most emotional. Yeah, yeah. And it was just two people looking at each other and going, here you are. And I wonder if those moments when Jesus touches yeah. the man who has leprosy or even forces the woman who touched him incognito to do it with a sense of presence and ownership of what's going on. That's that encounter. And that's Mm -hmm. what matters. Very helpful place probably to finish. I mean, we are finishing it at uh, chapter 8 today. Um, Next time we're picking up at uh, chapter 8, verse 27. I mean, I'm now regretting making this the the stopping point (laughs) because you've just said that Mark places these stories (laughs) 
side by side. But we're going to pick up at, at Peter's confession in, in uh, Caesarea Philippi and we're going to read on to chapter 10, verse 52. So it's not quite so much reading for next time, but I think what that will do is it will cause us to think a bit about discipleship and what that looks like. So we've begun to think about that today. Um, thank you very much to both of you. I will come back and ask you what your, your takeaways are in a minute. But before that, we haven't had Jen's gems yet. <laughs> I have a question for you because we're in the approach to Easter and as somebody who's always, I always feel my brain's about eight weeks ahead of real time because I'm thinking about writing stuff and so on. It struck me again this year, as it does every year, that that it's it's difficult, complicated to explain the cross and the resurrection. Actually, particularly around the cross, the brutality of the cross, the brutality of Jesus' arrest and um, trial to a younger audience. So we, we need to obviously do that sensitively, um, sensitive to the culture that we're in. But but at the same time, how do we how do we communicate what is a particularly brutal story and also could come across as quite a, a morbid story, actually? How do we do that? Well, the first thing is we need to do it because it is part of the story. And as Christians, we are people of the resurrection, but also people of the crucifixion. And I, I remember as a child... Um, only being aware of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. No idea what happened in between. Lots of hallelujahs and hosannas. But I, I wasn't told the story. I wasn't shared the story of, of what happened in between. So the first thing is, let, let's do it. Let's tell that story. And I think the children, we, we just want to create spaces where that story is told and keep the child at the centre of it um, and let them lead the questions. And wondering questions and open questions are great. So if we're telling the story of the crucifixion, and there's lots of resources out there if you're struggling, you know, to think how to tell it. Um, Ten of those, um, which is a, a, a online bookshop, which is linked to the Scottish Bible Society website, has lots of lovely resources at the moment that you could pick up on. Our Bible World book images could help you create that space and our wonder walk so there's a specific wonder walk for good friday so use these resources but create that space and when i say create that space i don't mean you're going to create a lovely perfect moment with a child it will be chaotic we were talking about earlier on when we were talking about alistair's wonder walk and there'll be laughter and you know embarrassment maybe but um let the child ask the question and respond appropriately and i think we shouldn't we shouldn't dodge that sad things happen and bad things happened and horrible things happened to Jesus because that is life and children know that as much as we do that difficult bad things happen uh, and talk about the physical reality of what the cross was about if it's a pro- if that's what the child wants to talk about but also um go beyond that and the reason it happened and the love that God is showing us of this fantastic story and there's lots of lovely wee bits in the bible that we can latch on to help do that so the ripping of the curtain and the, the earthquake, you know, why were these big things happening? What was God trying to tell us through what was happening in a very horrible way to Jesus and the cross or the conversations with the other people who were dying? So do that. And then always, always, that's not the end of the story, that Sunday is coming and mm-hmm. there is resurrection and Jesus is alive again. And I think with children, I was on a wonder walk with a family uh, last week um, and we were talking about lots of different things about Jesus and the Bible, but we also talked about poo and we and all these things that children talk about. You know, it wasn't perfect and cosy and easy. Um, let it let it be chaotic and just part of the normal every day um, as you live your lives together. Um, as we come to a close, what, what, what Jen, are you taking away from today? Oh, goodness. What's jumped out at you? I mean, it's only it's only how many chapters have we done? Six. 
seven and six, there's eight, eight. eight. well we, we did, seven we did the first one didn't we yeah so oh, so many things um I, I because i took time to read these stories again and read them slowly i think what i said earlier on about the the lives that people were living that jesus connected with and so my challenge is you know, who who do, who do I want to spend time with? Who am I listening to? Is it the people that people say are powerful and influential that I want to be with? Or am I, I'm, I'm spending time with the people around about me that God's put in my place at this time? And, and I don't mean that in a kind of patronising way. It's just it's just being being the person God needs me to be right here and now. And, and remembering that Jesus was always always aware of what was going on round about him and the sort of rhythm of his life. We talked about that, didn't we? That, you know, he, he went into the desert and, and he comes out and he, he knows what he's doing. And I suppose the way I live my life and how I connect with God and how I pray and read the Bible really has an impact on the kind of person I am in between those moments. So to be like Jesus in that mm-hmm. as well. What about you, Neil? Probably putting it just together with the last phrase that Jane used in um talking about resources, about the chaotic, the chaotic in the everyday and the encounter that happens there. And yeah, it's about the potential of meeting Jesus. Mark wrote because he believed that the same Christ was still present with his readers as was present with mm. those people in Galilee in the same way. It's about sensing what that moment is, that encounter, that touch. You know, the moment that Jesus tells the, the healed man to go back to his family, the moment that he summons the woman with the blood forward, the moment that he speaks to Jairus' daughter in Aramaic, Talitha Kum. All these moments of encounter. I'm thinking about subtext as you're speaking. I really love subtext and I think there's... I think I, it's encouraging me to engage more with the text again and look for those clues of what's what's going on in the surface and what's really going on underneath the surface and how those both those things both work together and yeah so that flows on from from that too moment by moment there's a quote about that I think it's got a swear word in it isn't it about history just being one thing after another um but actually what we're talking about here is a is a is a much bigger history it's a history of a kingdom that's that's growing brilliant well Good to see you both in your little squares. <laughs> we're very screen. glad we recorded. This is the second <laughs> attempt. We had a technical hitch last time. So I've, I, there's a red button that appears at the top of our browser that tells us we're recording. and I, I, Seems to still be working. Still seems to be working, yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing. Right. Well, thank you very much. And we'll see you both in a few weeks' time when we're going to talk about the next section of Mark. Thank you for, thank you for being here. <laughs> this is what I missed when we do this thing with the, the reflections of the key. We're not really allowed to talk to each other. It's not that we're not allowed. It's just that getting it to work was in the podcast. If you say, and the next, and I can see you desperately trying to work out what next to say. But those are my favourite moments. Fiona working furiously to make it sound smooth. <laughs> Which, by the way, you almost always do. Why, thank you very much. I just hope that uh, the bits that Alistair cuts out never get discovered. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to end the recording.